Well, yeah, back in September, we started this three-year journey through the Bible. And uh, with that, of course, three years just isn't enough time to cover like verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We'd be here for a very long time. I think Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones started a series in Romans and 13 years later, I think he didn't quite finish it before he passed away. And I think he got to chapter eight. There's 16 chapters in Romans. If you really dig in, uh, there's every verse, every passage has so much that we never exhaust it. We started this whole journey and the basic premise of the whole thing that we're doing over the next three years is that in, in uh, Luke chapter 24, Jesus meets two disciples who are discouraged and down and they can't see, they can't see how God is working in the moment because because Jesus has just died. They heard this rumor that he was alive and Jesus comes and meets them on the road uh, to Emmaus and he says to them, uh, first of all, he kind of you know, teases out of them what's been going on and then, and then he, they don't recognize that it's him, right? They're, they're kept from recognizing that it's Jesus and what happens then is that Jesus starts explaining from the scripture, from everything, the law of the prophets and the writings that, that the Messiah had to come suffer, die, and rise again, and then the good news would be proclaimed in his name uh, to all the nations. Something fuzzing back here, I don't know what it is. Um, but what happens then is that their eyes become open, they see it's Jesus. And then Jesus later appears to his disciples in that same chapter, the ending of Luke, and he says the same thing. He has to explain and he starts, the law, the prophets, and the writings, all these things pointed to me, guys. All of this pointed to me. And so that's the lens that we're reading our, our, our scripture through as we go through this gospel project, that this is all leading us, pointing us, informing us about who Jesus is and the amazing work that he has done for us. Well, we've been going through uh, Genesis, and today we're wrapping this up with three, um, three snippets out of Joseph's life. Joseph's story spans Genesis 37 to 50. It is the longest narrative in the book of Genesis. And when you see that, when you go, okay, like, that's the longest chunk of Genesis, it's probably one of the most important stories. We're going to see three key things that come out of this. What happens to Joseph is difficult because he gets betrayed by his family. He gets favored by his dad. It creates a bigger problem with his brothers. As we saw last week, things in the life of God's chosen family are messy. And even as we read of Jacob's response uh, to, to Joseph's supposed death and the request uh, for Benjamin to accompany his brothers in Egypt, you look in chapter 37, uh, Joseph's brothers took him. He was a favored. You know, Joseph had the coat of many colors. Basically what that said to the brothers was, your younger brother is actually the heir and he's going to get everything that, that uh, he's going to be in charge of everything. And they didn't like that because in that culture, of course, the oldest son gets the best. And the oldest son is supposed to be the next in line to be in charge. But Jacob said, actually, it's going to be Joseph. He's one of the younger brothers. And so this creates conflict. And there's all this conflict with Joseph and his brothers. They, they take him, they strip him of his robe, they throw him down a well, they sell him into slavery. And even, even Jacob in that moment says, 
that's it, my last son is gone. When the, and then they ask him to send Benjamin, Joseph's brother of Rachel, and it's the same thing. Jacob is like, all his other kids don't matter to him except these two. And Jacob continues living in this favoritism and creating more family dysfunction. Makes a relationship between Jacob and his other 10 sons rather tense, wouldn't you say? But here's the thing we'll see today. God continues to be at work behind the scenes, even when he is silent and seemingly distant. We don't have any, thus saith the Lord, or God came and told Joseph this or that, or appeared to Joseph in a dream. Uh, none, none of that really happens. He does have dreams. He interprets dreams. He knows God is with him. He is aware of God's presence and God's purposes, though it's a very different kind of story than the ones we're used to hearing in Genesis. And this is precisely what gets Joseph through some hard times in life. He experiences the betrayal of family, being sold into slavery, being falsely accused of rape, spending years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But God works in all of this. Joseph makes it through all of this because God is faithful. Genesis 39 and we're just going to read the end of this uh, chapter, verses 21 to 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And then over to chapter 45. Actually, we'll just, we'll just stop there. We'll, we'll, we'll tackle this one at a time. Do this a little differently this morning. So in this passage, if you, if you go back in, in chapter 39, you'll, you'll, you'll recognize that this is a repetition. This is what God had said earlier uh, through, through the author in verse two. The Lord was with Joseph, and this is in Potiphar's house. His master saw the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he uh, did to succeed. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for the sake of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on all he had in his house and field. And so the beginning and the end of the chapter say exactly the same thing. So here's Joseph in slavery and the Lord is with him and the Lord prospers him and everything that, that, uh, the, that Potiphar gives him to, to do, God causes it to be blessed. And then we get the situation where Potiphar's wife tries to seduce uh, Joseph, but he resists. And then eventually she catches him in a situation where she can falsely accuse him of rape. And so he gets chucked in prison, but God doesn't change. God's presence with him doesn't change. I, how often do we think when things are going bad, where's God in it all? And here's a guy that's a slave, been sold into slavery, hucked down a well, falsely accused of rape, and now is doing time. How come God isn't preventing all of this stuff from happening? Over and over, the author is saying, the Lord was with Joseph. And the writer wants us to know that God was with Joseph and blessed what he did. The emphasis is not on Joseph's special skills, nor the perfect timing of the situation. Yes, 
Joseph was a good steward. Yes, Joseph did well with what was entrusted to him. Yet it must be noted that Joseph would not have received anything to steward if God had not provided for him. Over and over, we're reminded in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this trial, the Lord was with Joseph. So God is faithful to be present with his people, even in adversity. God is present with Joseph in his slavery and his imprisonment. You see, life circumstances are not a reliable indicator for God's blessing and presence. Everything in your life may be falling apart, but it doesn't mean God has abandoned you. In fact, those times in our lives may be when we are the most aware of God's presence with us. And it may also be those times when God is most at work in and through your life to bless others, even though you may not be able to see it at the moment. But how easily do we question God's goodness when life gets hard? Where's God when it hurts? One of those titles on my bookshelf, a, a book I think I got near graduation, so in the late 80s, <clears throat> um, where is God when my locker won't open? I, we probably have that in the library somewhere, right? It was, it was a youth book about, you know, when, when, where's God when it hurts? Disappointment with God, Philip Yancey. These, the, you know, we wrestle with this question so much. Where is God when it's difficult? Why is God seemingly absent? Why do we assume that God isn't present when life gets hard? Mark Clark in his book, The Problem of God, says this, the reason we struggle with this concept of purposeful suffering in the Western world is because we see the point and purpose of life as happiness. In, a par in that paradigm, suffering is always a pointless invasion. The American dream, happiness, love, life, prosperity. And if we don't see it, God must be absent. God must be doing something you know, he, he must have just left us to suffer in this mess because we want to be happy more than we want to be holy. And God is more concerned about our holiness than he is our happiness. And sometimes holiness comes through suffering because it brings us to an end of ourselves. It brings us to the, the reality that we can't control life as much as we think we can. The author of Genesis is consistently, constantly pointing us to the fact that it was God who was with Joseph in his pains and in his trials. It was God who gave Joseph success, provided the interpretation of dreams for the cupbearer and the baker and Pharaoh. And all of this leads to the purpose God has for Joseph being in Egypt at all, to demonstrate his provision and his care for his people and through them to bless the world. We're back to Genesis 12. Don't miss this. Joseph's story is the answer to God's covenant announced in chapter 12. We see a family growing up to 70 persons, and that's a deliberate mirror of the 70 nations of, of chapter 10. We see Joseph blessing all nations. The whole world comes to Egypt because there's a famine. And also don't miss this reality. God's blessing on the nation and the nations comes through the humility of a suffering servant of God. 
who views himself as the sent one to preserve life. Does that sound familiar? The reason I was sent into the world, says Jesus, is to save many lives. And it's going to happen through my death and my resurrection. My abandonment, my suffering, my pain is going to be the way that that happens. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 18 to 21. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How does that reconciliation get get activated? Uh, Colossians chapter 1, 19 to 20, For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Reconciliation, the salvation of nations, the blessing to all comes through the suffering servant of God. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. God's is faith, God is faithful to be present with his people even in adversity. It is through the suffering servant of God that blessing to the nations comes. And sometimes it's through suffering that we get led away from happiness as our goal to holiness. Now just because God's present, just because God is faithful to be present with us even in our suffering doesn't diminish the suffering. It is still suffering. It is still painful. It still may lead to despair because it's still Jesus calling from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? even though he knew his suffering had a clear purpose. Even Joseph was able to interpret his suffering through the clear purpose of God, as we'll see. It is still painful to journey through it. But do we always get to know what that purpose is? Joseph saw it. Jesus understood his purpose. But that doesn't mean God always tells us. Often we don't see the purpose of our suffering or in our suffering or the suffering of people around us and we have questions that we can't answer. You know, I always feel inadequate anytime I I visit a family who has just lost someone. What, What do you say? 
What's the purpose of this? How does God redeem this? How is God present in this? And I can't answer all of those questions. The only thing I know is that death is not part of the life God designed for us. That death will one day be destroyed. And in Christ we will mourn, but we will not mourn in hopelessness and despair like the world does. This world we're living in is, is a painful reminder of our frailty and our need for the life-giving Savior. And if this past two years has not eroded our sense of pride and control over life, fires and floods and plagues, I don't know what will. Humanity just isn't as in control as we would like to believe. One day of rain can alter our world radically. We're so powerless to stop it. But God remains faithful to be with us in it all, even in, and I believe especially in our darkest days. Psalm 23, right in the middle of the psalm, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's a dark valley, we're still walking through it, but God's presence is there with us. God is faithful to be present with his people, even in their suffering. The Lord was with Joseph over and over in chapter 39. Well, the story continues. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happens. Joseph has, he, he interprets some dreams uh, for, for, for a baker and a cupbearer. The cupbearer gets his dream. His dream is fulfilled and he gets put back into his position as Pharaoh's cupbearer. And the baker has his dream interpreted because he gets excited. Hey, it's a good interpretation for you. Maybe it is for me too. And it's like, uh, no, uh, actually it's not a good interpretation. You're not gonna like this one, but it comes true anyway. And then it's years later. <laughs> Pharaoh has these crazy dreams about like seven fat cows come out of the Nile River and then seven skinny cows come out of the river and they eat the fat cows but they're still skinny and there's seven heads of grain that, that pop up and they're plump and they're ripe and everything's great but then there's seven skinny heads that pop up and they eat the fat ones and they're still, you know, skinny and and Pharaoh's like, I don't know what this means. And all the wise men of Egypt are like, we don't know what this means. And the cupbearer goes, oh, wait a minute. There's a guy I know. Uh, let's go talk to him. I forgot. I was supposed to tell you about him like years ago, but it kind of slipped my mind because I was, you know, just happy that I got out of prison. He's still in prison. And Joseph interprets these dreams. There's going to be seven years of great harvest. It's going to be awesome. But then there's going to be seven years of famine. And so what Joseph, he interprets this dream and, and Pharaoh goes, oh, that's great. We need to find somebody really super smart that can, that can help us uh, go through this next 14 years. And he's like, oh, wait, wait a minute. You're the guy that just interpreted the dream. You're the guy. So Joseph is now, he's gone from a slave to a prisoner to the second most important guy in Egypt. And now he has to do some hard stuff. <clears throat> He has, to, he has to send out, like, when everything's going really well, do you expect taxes to go up significantly? 
Do you expect government mandates when everything is going fine to say, we need your food and your animals and we need to build storehouses and we're gonna be the next seven years of absolute prosperity and good times, we have to sock a lot of it away because there's seven years of famine coming. I mean, if all of a sudden, you know, Canada was like the pinnacle of, of, uh, of you know, you got raises and everything was going great and everybody had really good jobs and there was a lot of prosperity and the government said, okay, we're raising taxes to 20% because in seven years it's going to get bad. And you're like, whatever. Because I, look, I've watched the last two years. I know our attitudes. This wouldn't go over well, would it? This is a position Joseph's in. And this famine starts spreading and spreading and it's getting worse and worse. And Jacob and his family in Canaan are like, we're running out of food. We hear there's food in Egypt because nobody else prepared for it. Let's go to Egypt and get some food. So eight of the brothers get ready. They go to Egypt. They go to buy food, they meet Joseph, they don't recognize him because it's been a while, and they figured he was dead anyway. They sold him into slavery. Um, And he's also now like the most powerful man in the world, other than Pharaoh. And they forget this dream that Joseph had as a kid too, whole other story. They come and they bow down to him, and Joseph in this moment has a choice when he recognizes them. But here's our second point this morning. God is faithful to prompt forgiveness in his people. God is faithful to prompt forgiveness in his people. Chapter 45, starting in verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which neither will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph had every reason to be bitter, to want justice and retribution. He could have acted out and demanded justice. He was in a place of absolute power over his family, over his brothers when they came to buy food in Egypt. They were in his power and no one would have questioned Joseph because he'd already called them out as spies and he said, okay, I believe you're spies, just execute them. Nobody would have batted an eye. Fine, second most powerful man in Egypt, just off these guys from Canaan, figured they were spies, move along. How does Joseph come to this place? To forgive, and not only to forgive, but to rain blessing on them. They beat him up, they hucked him in a well, they sold him into slavery. They deceived their father into thinking he was dead. I mean, how do you just say, 
don't worry about it. Well, he came to realize God's sovereign purposes through his life and through his suffering. He came to experience God redeeming his pain. And God calls us to be a forgiving people because we are to embody the forgiveness he offers us. Now, however, forgiveness does not mean the wrongs that were done were insignificant. Actually, Joseph doesn't say it was no big deal, just forget about it. He says, you sold me into slavery. He calls it what it was. And later on, he repeats this too. You meant it for evil. Your intentions were evil. He doesn't let them off the hook. But he puts them on God's hook because God had a bigger purpose. Their wrongs were still significant. He names those wrongs. See, one of the things we got to remember is that forgiveness is a deep decision to live with the pain of the wrong done to us and not hold it against the other person. That's what forgiveness is. True forgiveness is saying, I will live with the ongoing pain of your wrong. Forgiveness says the wrongs do matter. That there is a cost, that it is painful, but it says I will live with the pain I have received and I will return it with love and blessing. And boy, isn't that the hard road to take. Romans 12, 19 to 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How far does that go? Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, our sin hurts others. And we have hurt others by our sins. And Jesus has suffered and died for it all because it exacts a heavy, heavy price and it's not insignificant. God prompts us to be forgiving people because he is a forgiving God. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. God is faithful to be present with his people even in times of trial. God is faithful to prompt forgiveness in his people. And thirdly, God is faithful to bring good, even from evil, to bring good. The end of the story. 
So what happens is as th things go on, uh, jo Joseph invites uh, Jacob and his whole family. They come down and, and they settle in the land of Goshen and, and they get the, some of the best uh, land in, in Egypt and God preserves them through this time of famine. And eventually Jacob dies. He blesses all his sons. Uh, he, he dies. And then the brothers are like, oh no, what if Joseph was nice to us just because dad was still around? And now he's going to come at us again because, you know, what we did was pretty bad. They're still living with guilt. They're, they're still living with the, with the reality that what we did was wrong. And what happens? 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph. They didn't even go themselves. They sent a message saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers for their sin because they did evil to you. Did, Joseph, did Jacob actually say that? Got no record of that. Did they make it up? Quite likely. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke this to him. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Before, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Again, Joseph expresses forgiveness, but he doesn't, not just words, he doesn't just say, I forgive you. He does it in action. He welcomed his family. He provided for them. He blessed them. Because Joseph interprets his life and his struggles and his pains through the lens of God's sovereignty. This is how we can endure trials and struggles and suffering. Sometimes that's all you have is that God is on the throne. Sometimes the only healing for your deepest wounds will come at the end of the story. You know, we have this saying, sometimes we use it kind of, it's a back and forth thing where we say, God is good all the time and all the time, God is good. How can we declare that when we are in the midst of deep suffering? when her family's falling apart, when a loved one dies, when we're sick, when we go through financial crisis, when things, the wheels just seem to keep falling off the bus. Like, like it's real easy to say that on a Sunday morning. It's a lot harder to say it when the knock comes on the door and something horrible has happened. Joseph interprets his life and his struggles through the lens of God's sovereignty. And we have to do that too. Not only for the things that have happened to us, but even for our own missteps and our own stuff that we've got in our lives. You know, are there decisions in your life that you regret? I know I have some. There's things I wish I could do totally differently. Where would I be today if I had actually taken a different path? I, the what if questions can haunt us and drive us nuts. 
But we can also look back and see God's hand in those decisions. And maybe those decisions weren't great and maybe they caused pain and hurt to the people around us. And there is a time for confession. We do have to own our mistakes. We do have to own our sin. We do have to confess that we have hurt people in our lives. We don't deny our pain. We don't deny the pain we have caused others. We need to own that stuff. Confession is part of reconciliation. But we also need to look at where God has brought us because of those decisions and determine and discern his redeeming work despite our poor choices. Joseph's brother's intentions were evil. You meant evil against me, but God. And those are two powerful words. But God meant it for good. This doesn't excuse them. It doesn't make it right. It means God has redeemed what was evil. God is faithful to be present with us, to prompt forgiveness in us, and to bring good from evil against us or by us. So how do we live this out? First question for for our heads. How will you change the way you think about the power of evil in this world? God's purposes are in constant conflict with the world. And there is a battle, there is a struggle, but God is sovereign over all and we can't understand all that that means and we wrestle with that and we wrestle with the evil and the suffering in our world. Joseph looked back on a life of family struggle, betrayal, dysfunction, slavery, false accusation, and he discerned the purposes of God. It doesn't make those experiences less painful or less traumatic, but it gives us hope. God's purposes continue in and even through the painful struggles we face. However, unlike Joseph, we may not get the answer as to why. We may never see God's grand purposes revealed. That's the message of the book of Job. Job's like, why am I suffering, God? Why am I suffering? He never really gets the answer. But he gets an experience with God that transforms his life. See, just because we can't see it or understand it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose in it. I mean, how do you explain fires that wipe out entire towns, floods that ravage homes and lives, the Holocaust, the residential schools, ethnic violence, world wars? How do you explain all of that? Our world is broken, it is in pain. But all of that should be driving us toward. God and not away from him. This is what happens in the Psalms. The reality of our pain is placed before God's throne and we trust in his purposes because the two can and should coexist. God is sovereign and our world is broken. But it's a challenge to think differently about evil in this world and God's sovereignty over it. Second question to address our hearts. In what circumstances do you need to rejoice knowing that God cares and provides for you? 
In many of the lament psalms, these songs that are written out of pain and out of struggle and out of trial and out of oppression, there comes a recognition of God's sovereignty and that's usually the turning point in the psalm, the moment when the song goes from complaint and crying out to praise and to joy. The circumstances don't change, but the heart of the psalmist does because God is in the picture. The pain is still real, the pressure's still on, but the spirit has found a resting place. The old hymn, my faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-loving one. His wounds, they plead for me. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And we think of this Joseph story. Consider this. Who, who do we reflect on? Who do we resonate with? Who do we, it, it, every time you read a story, you tend to kind of view yourself in one of the characters' positions, Right? We love to maybe put ourselves in Job's shoes. Well, not love to. Joseph's shoes, wrong guy. Joseph's shoes, because Joseph acts rightly. Joseph gets in, in, in on all the good stuff. We rarely view ourselves as one of the brothers. And that's really who we are. Jesus came into this world. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. They abused him. They abandoned him. They crucified him. We're the brothers who have rejected, resisted, and live away from the true Joseph who welcomes us, forgives us, restores us, and provides for us. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God made you alive in Christ. in the midst of your pain, in the midst of the journey you're in, how do you need to just turn to the life-giving love that Jesus offers, the forgiveness he offers, where he says to you too, don't be afraid. I am in the place of God, to take, to take uh, Joseph's words, I am in the place of God, statement. And as for you, you've had a hard life. You've meant evil against others. but I am bringing about redemption and restoration and reconciliation to all things through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Rejoice in that. Well, what do we do with this? Our hands gotta get dirty if we're gonna apply this one, that's for sure. How will you demonstrate the kindness and forgiveness you have received in Christ? Joseph suffered because of his brothers. His brothers lived with the guilt of what they had done for decades. What must it have been like for them to receive this forgiveness from Joseph, offered not in words, but even with actions towards them? And let's think of this. God has intervened in our lives. He has lavished his love on us in Jesus Christ. Jesus died so that we could experience freedom from a life of guilt and shame. God's kindness leads us to repentance. God's kindness to us ought to fuel our kindness and forgiveness towards others. You see, Joseph not only pointed to God's purposes in addressing his brothers, he also demonstrated forgiveness by working to bless them 
right in the here and now because forgiveness isn't words, forgiveness is actions we take. And so how can you demonstrate the kindness and forgiveness you have received in Christ? God is faithful. He will be with us in everything we go through in life. Because he has forgiven us, he prompts us to forgive others. And God in his sovereignty works to bring good even from evil done to us or done through us. Because God is faithful and true. Let's pray. Lord, there are a lot of rabbit trails and unanswered questions as we come to ideas like this. Help us to meditate on your word and think through the reality of what you call us to be as followers of Jesus Christ. Who are supposed to live out this reconciliation that God has offered us in our relationships with one another and people around us. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Lord, help us to love as you loved us. Help us to demonstrate that to one another and to those around us. Even when it feels unjust. Help us think through this deeply because it's not a simple thing to live. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the one who came. God in the flesh came, was rejected, abandoned, abused, tortured, crucified, rose again and lives forever so that we can be forgiven, restored, redeemed, rejuvenated, revived, resurrected ourselves, and to carry the image of God in us, through us, to the world around us. And so, Father, help us to see ourselves, too, as sent people into a world that is broken, into a world that is hurting, that we can live out, not just in words, but with deeds, your reconciling truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the benediction. Romans chapter 11, verses 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.